0: Welcome to the Human Centred Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Colm Hay. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the planet and I get to speak to incredible leaders from all sorts of uh, industries and to get their take on what leadership means to them, specifically, what is human-centered leadership? So today's guest is Susie Verma. I've been following Susie for a long while now. Susie is head of business development in corporate banking and I've seen how Susie gets to... um, view the markets, gets to interact with so many different kinds of businesses and understands leadership. We've met previously and had a long discussion around leadership and I just thought it'd be really cool to get her on the podcast and to speak leadership with us. So Susie, Wonderful honour to have you here. Thank you so much for taking time out.
1: Thanks, Cole. Very kind of you to say those nice words. Um, delighted to be <laughs> here today. Um, you have been pestering me for quite some time. so. Uh,
0: I have. I've been chasing you. I've been chasing you for some time because I just know the value that you've got to add to this. Uh and listen, before we, um, before we actually press record there, uh, you and I were talking about the volatility in the finance markets and how that's affecting uh, retailers and therefore how it's affecting us as consumers. And then we started talking about some really fascinating stuff around artificial intelli- intelligence, the metaverse, essentially the way the world is shifting right now. Uh, So you must see this all the time in terms of, you know, interacting with the large scale corporates. How are they shifting with this complex changing world in which we exist?
1: to be honest i don't think anybody has a magic wand at this moment in time but what i would say is depending on what sector the the business is in or depending on when the business was set up things are changing so rapidly and the common theme is no one can stand still or sit on their laurels Mm. i think Um, the danger is doing nothing is just not an option anymore because things are changing so fast um so um what I would say is in the environment we're in today, there are so many macro forces at play here. Um, But ultimately I think more than ever before, understanding your market and understanding your consumer, your end game and where your product needs to go is the most important thing. And, you know, that might come with its own challenges, but you have to build that loyalty and loyalty is built on trust. So that's, for me, it's all around authenticity and being, you know, you've got a proposition. It's got to say what it's supposed to do. And for that, your customer's got to buy into that. And it's not a case of this is our brand, this is our vision and here, take it. It's about really understanding. And it's that constant going back to market and seeking that feedback. And, you know, that's that's something that won't go away.
0: This is why I've been chasing you, Susie. <laughs> because you just nailed it in in that short statement there. I, I'm picking up some really key words in there. You know, I work with all sorts of corporate clients and I often talk about you've got to understand your values. You have to be a value-driven business. At the very core of who you are as a company, as an organization, as a business, you have to live your values because values are what builds a trust and you're talking about trust there. Uh, and within the concept of trust, you have to have this this, this underlying authenticity, you've got to be real in today's marketplace because let's face it, we were talking about the metaverse, weren't we? Mm. And, and how, I still haven't got my head around this, but you had, you, you were talking about the metaverse. You went somewhere and you were looking at the metaverse and, and what that means. But the way I see that it's the metaverse is almost living in this avatar kind of world, but making real, real world decisions. Is that my, is that my understanding right of that?
1: It is right, but I'd be, um I'd be lying if I said I understood it fully
0: myself. <laughs> well, at least you understand it that bit more than I do.
1: <laughs> no, I said I think for me it's around. There are so many large businesses entering the metaverse, so at the end of the day, it's here to stay. And things are happening; businesses are being traded. There's crypto. There's all sorts of things happening, and I think um, what I did say is when you go in. I think it's one of those. It's it, at the moment it's it's gamified. You go in, you have a play, you come back out. Mm. Um, but I'd say the the younger generation um, would probably find that they'd adapt to it a lot quicker than than we would at this stage. I'd say because they get it that a lot of what they're doing now is all games and AI and virtual reality. So. Um, it's, it's somewhere where I think um, because large corporates have invested in it already, I think it's, it's going to be a while before some of the smaller businesses get into it, but it's here to stay. Um, but it is, it's, it's surreal. It's very hard to describe. I mean, the first time I went in, I must admit it took me a few minutes to kind of feel like I was sitting again, my head was spinning. Um, it's just, it, it's just a strange concept, but I would recommend you give it a go if you haven't done it yourself yet. Do you
0: know what? I'm going to try and find somewhere I can ever have, have a play with a metaverse and have a look, but it is here to stay. It is going to be something that is going to be linked into our future. And this world in which we exist seems to be changing and moving uh, forward at such a pace, uh, that it's, we're hard pushed sometimes, aren't we? To, to, to remain agile and adaptable and constantly be changing with the, with the world. Um, But it's critical that we do.
1: Before we pressed record, we were just talking about, you know, when the internet came in. I mean, we survived, you know, I look back at my childhood memories and we didn't, you know, we didn't use gadgets. We just played with each other. We were creative and we had conversations. We'd sit at the dinner table. Whereas now, like my six-year-old now, but from the age of four, she'd pick up my phone, she'd put it to my face, she'd unlock it and should be YouTube or Netflix and you know so that's so different and that shows the adaptability and we were also talking about mobile phones and I don't know if like others remember but I used to have like one of those big Motorola phones and an Ericsson phone and we didn't have like (laughs) FaceTime or Skype or any of these things and you know we've got them but we adapted and once we adapted it's so hard to go back to what we used to have And I'd say that's where we're at today. Um, I suppose I'll just check in another example. Um, Pre-COVID, many companies, large corporations, we didn't have things like um, Zoom meetings or Teams. Um, And it's amazing how quickly we all had to be agile and adapt and embrace this technology
0: this was incredible. I mean, I, 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 I used to use Zoom an awful lot. I always have done, and you know, video conferencing it's because of the clients that I've had around the world. But it shocked me how quickly organizations reshape their thinking and, uh, and their ability to connect with people and have online meetings, and suddenly everybody was an expert in Microsoft Teams, for example. And I still can't get my head around Microsoft Teams. I still find that very clunky, but people are sending messages on, uh, on MST and, you know, they're using MST almost as a form of email now. And I just find that incredulous. But it dem- demonstrates our ability, our innate ability to move with the times. So, so why is it, do you think, that organisations, leaders, sometimes are so reluctant to move apace with the times?
1: I don't think it's the reluctance to move. I think it just depends. I think pre-COVID, um, relationships are built in person. Um, well, for me, they are anyway. I think for me, I need to, to meet someone. I'm very tactile. so Yeah, I, Yeah, so for me, I get a lot more through human interaction and engagement than I would through a screen. But I think if COVID's taught us one thing, um, customers have adapted as well very quickly. So in the past... Um, you might travel an hour, two hours to go and see a client or vice versa. But that time that people have got back and the value that that time that they've got back's created, some of it's like dropping the kids off or picking the kids up or doing something like building well-being or, you know, exercise into a routine. I think people have choices now. Um, And I think, with um, with the technology, like before you'd go to a client meeting, they might last for two hours or it could be 90 minutes. Whereas now the rigid, rigid kind of timekeeping around 30 minute Zooms or 15 minute Zooms gives people a lot more time back and actually mm. getting to things a lot quicker um, and solutions as well. So if a customer needs something really quickly, what I find is it's it's not necessarily picking up the phone. I get less phone calls now than I do invites to Zoom meetings. Um, so I say Zoom, it could be Teams, it could be anything.
0: But don't you think that, uh, you know, the fact that over the last couple of years, and we're just talking about two years, but the the changes that we've lived through in the last two years just been, it's mind-blowing when you actually sit and think about it. But one of those key changes are with the video conferences is that, We've also got this insight into people's lives because we can see what's going on behind the backgrounds, people. And, and I put this on LinkedIn the other day. I rarely wear suits now. Before COVID, I was wearing suits all the time. I'd go and see clients. I'd be wearing a suit. Now I go to see clients, you know, corporate clients, and they say, actually, can you not wear a suit? Can you can you dress? Like I'm dressed right now, maybe a shirt and a jumper, uh, you know, something slightly more relaxed. And I think there's, a, there's there's that human shift that's happened over the last two years. And organisations really need to understand that as well, that there's been this, I don't know what it is, like a recalibration of people's priorities. There's been this, this this increase in the ability to talk about vulnerabilities, there's this insight into people's lives. You get to see what their homes look like just through uh, Zoom meetings. And that's got to have had a, an impact on how organisations need to think.
1: Yeah, and I think if anything, it's, an, it's enabled employers to get closer to their employees as well because things like the children popping up on screens or pets joining like calls. I've had situations where cats have run across the screen or cat's <laughs> sat on somebody's head, or my own daughter's just literally joined in and decided to take over my meeting. So,
0: did it do a good job. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, the cat situation <laughs> was a bit awkward because I was actually interviewing somebody uh, <laughs> and then we lost connection. I think uh, this, the, the cat spilled a glass of water or something. So we had to start again. So that, that was more difficult for the uh, interviewee, unfortunately, trying to get back into the interview. But uh, but no, it's it's been quite nice. I think um, people have actually um, started to share a lot more about what matters. And I think... I just hope that stays now that we're, you know, encouraging people to get back into the office. I think that trust and that vulnerability, I think it's it's really important because I think, if anything, what we've seen now, especially with children as well, like mental health and well-being so important. And lots of organisations have done some amazing things around that in terms of um, the ongoing support, whether it's through BUPA or other care providers, or it's getting people to come in and just talking about it's actually okay not to be okay. And there's lots of support and resources out there, lots of signposting. And with young kids, you know, the most I do a lot of reading, especially having a young child myself. And I'm really into like neuroplasticity and things that happen at a young age and kids taken to adulthood. And I really worry about some of our children, um, whether it's, you know, before the age of seven or even at university years, because actually those two years of not having that social interaction, some children have really suffered trying to get back into school and back into education.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yesterday I was I was in a comprehensive school Um, I often volunteer to go into comprehensive schools in my city and help them with mock interviews uh, questions and do some coaching Uh, and the teacher did say you you know the attendance this year has been is short is smaller than it has been in previous years and what we have found as a school and these were like year 10 and 11 so 15 16 year old uh, uh, children uh, she says, what we have found is that the confidence has diminished in the whole swathe of uh, 15, 16-year-olds because of what they've lived through over the last two years. So we've got a, a, an uphill job to rebuild that confidence. And I, I just think to myself, you know, it's not the confidence, not of just of 15, 16-year-olds, but younger children, um, even adults. Uh, a lot of adults have suffered as a consequence, uh, a lot of adults have suffered with isolation, having worked from home uh, and, and organizations, those organizations that care, those organizations that have got good, vibrant, healthy culture will understand that and will put some measures in place. And some of the measures that you talk about is, you know, bringing some other people in, maybe, maybe having private healthcare to facilitate some psychotherapy, counseling, wellbeing sessions uh, in, in their workplace. Um, I saw a startling uh, Uh, um, statistic the other day around armed forces and it said something like more people in the armed forces have died uh, uh, taking their own lives than actually were lost in wars over the last x amount of years and I found that a shocking a shocking sort of revelation but I just wonder how much other PTSD kind of um, behaviour is being exhibited elsewhere in other organisations. Because norm- ordinarily we associate PTSD with the military, but I'm having lots of conversations with police officers, emergency services, and even people who work in, you know, like office-based environments uh, and and the, the trauma that they might have experienced over the last two years. Yeah,
1: and I think in the care sector as well. I mean, I've got who reworks in a hospital and she's on a COVID ward And I think the things that they've seen, they can't switch it off. Like they've had to kind of, you know, sit with patients where families weren't allowed to be with them and sit through, you know, the last breath and what have you. And I think um, how you get over something like that, it's really difficult. But I think ultimately my respect for, you know, the care sector as well as the teachers is just through the roof because I think what they've had to do and adapt again, because, you know, it's it wasn't normal for teachers to be doing so much around online education as well. And, you know, and, and kids have had to embrace that. A lot of what they would normally have done was through play and learning in the classroom. Um, so it is, it, it's difficult, it's sad, but I think... It's it's one of those things I think that will stay with us forever. Um, but I'm hoping as a society, it's actually brought us closer together because yeah. some of the things like clapping, you know, for NHS workers – If you'd have talked about that five, ten years ago, we would have thought that was just madness. Nobody would do that. But the way that everybody came together, even like just, you know, that neighbourly kind of spirit where people were knocking on neighbours' doors and going shopping, doing the shopping and just dropping bags at the door, all those little gestures... It's just been so nice to see cultures
0: coming together. You know, we, we saw a unification and that sense of unification, I think, has lasted in this country. Certainly with, if you recall, the, the, you know, the Queen's funeral and the diversity of people that came out with genuine grief, uh, either to go past her resting place in Westminster uh, Palace uh, or, or, or to see it during the funeral itself. And I found that a, a remarkable, poignant moment for the United Kingdom as a country. But I think, you know, when we're talking about this this humanity and it's a very human kind of thing that we've all been through, this human experience, um, you must see how different organisations and different sectors respond differently uh, to the changes of the tides uh, when it comes to looking after your people in in, in the work environment. What have you seen that you would say is good practice and how are, how are good organizations responding? And what have you also seen that is not so good and that could do with improving? Oh, that's
1: a tough one. I only, I only look for good in people <laughs> if I'm honest. I, uh,
0: <laughs> well, let's focus yeah. on the good then we can, we can assume the bad. Do you know
1: one we? example that's really live is I was at the CBI conference last week and uh, there was a panel of trailblazers and one of the, the panelists was from Octopus Energy. And they were talking about, um, obviously, the energy crisis and how they wanted to kind of be close to their consumers, consumers are everything. So the owner decided to just go and buy a load of electric blankets because the cost of switching on an electric blanket is significantly less than having to put heating on. And they were getting so many, wow. uh, they didn't do a marketing campaign, they didn't publicize it, but what they did do was where they were getting inbounds from customers who were struggling to pay their bills, they were sending them a free electric blanket. And then it was the customers, it went viral I think on Facebook and social media. What he was saying was, They did it out of the goodness of their heart because it was the right thing to do and that creates loyalty ultimately. But actually the reason they did that was to support the people that needed it the most. Um, And that stuck with me because I thought that's just such a small thing to do.
0: But what a fantastic gesture.
1: And I think the other thing is um, lots of employers have looked at their most vulnerable in the organization. And I have seen like one off payments being made to support employees in terms of, you know, the next couple of months just to kind of give them some finance to kind of get them through the winter. Um, and, I, you know, and I think what I would say is great leaders we'll just do what's right. So I'd say there's things that are very bespoke to individuals. So for instance, if I had somebody in my team come and talk to me, I know for a fact, I'd just buy something and send it to them with, you know, just because it's the right thing to do. And I think there's a lot of that happening around at the moment.
0: It's very human behavior, isn't it? What, everything that you're describing is very, very human behavior. And, and and I welcome that. And I think, oh, goodness, if all organisations were to do something like that for their employees, for their clients and their customers, you know, it'd be a phenomenal um, country that we would be living in right now. Over the last few months, certainly, uh, Susie, we have been inundated uh, in the media, haven't we, with rising inflation, rising prices, rising fuel, cost of living, uh, depreciating wages, more tax, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not been a very pretty picture, has it? And, and a lot of people will be feeling really anxious right now, uh, worried, genuinely worried, and actually genuinely struggling to put food on the table even. Um, now, clearly, you say you, you you went to a CBI event, and so you get to speak to those individuals at the very top end of business. Is there any talk around... Um, whatever while there will be a, f- a focus on the fiscal sort of, uh, 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 fiscal strategy of the, the, the country, is there any talk around how organisations should be looking after their staff through these really uh, challenging uh, period?
1: You know, if I'm honest, I'd say 100% of the conversations I have with organisations have that on the agenda. Oh, fantastic! Uh, we talk, yeah, we talk about sustainability, but actually, people is a huge part of your ESG strategy, um, and lots of organisations, big and small. I think it's it's a priority because without people, there's no business. If you get your people right, they look after the customers, and I, I, it's just that's what makes the world go round. So it's um, it's it's a really interesting one. I can honestly say I haven't come across a single meeting where people's not come up. And majority of my meetings would be at CEO level or CFO level or chairman level. And if I say what keeps you up at night, people would certainly come into that. They worry about their people. They worry about supply chains. They worry about inflation, energy costs. There's so many things that come up. But ultimately, their conversations will be around. It's more important now than ever to be as close to our suppliers than we've ever been before. Because actually, if your suppliers are one of your major suppliers and they don't know that you've got issues, they can't do something to help you. And there might be something there because you've been a loyal customer for, say, 50 years. They don't want to lose you. It's those little gestures that I think will build up that loyalty. It
0: it takes me back to that old phrase, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And it's encouraging people and organisations to actually have these conversations because ultimately what we're talking about here is relationship building, isn't it? So, Mm -hmm. you know, building stronger relationships with your suppliers, building stronger relationships with your teams, with your staff, with your people and with your clients And by building those relationships, you know, it comes right back to where you were talking about authenticity and how authenticity is so, so critical right now. And I would add to that, I think vulnerability is critical right now because that is part and parcel of authenticity. But unless you are demonstrating vulnerability, either as an organization or as a a human being or a leader, you can't build trust. And that's what it all comes down to. At the end of the day, you've got to have trust in every relationship.
1: I think it's that and I think it's also believing in your people because sometimes it's your people that will see what you don't see because you're so close to the yeah, detail. I agree. And I think that engagement and getting like a great example we've got or I've seen is around reverse mentoring having like really strategic conversations at the top. Um and I can say this so I sit on the board of the chambers as well and one thing we did was we decided to bring Uh, members from Future Faces into our board meeting and their contribution around what business needs because they represent the younger generation around the table and they see a lot as well. But at the end of the day, if we keep doing what we've always done, we're not going to move with the time. So I think it's really, really important. And I think sometimes with employees, it's that culture of speaking up, and it's okay to voice what you, what, what needs changing. Um, and I think things like that, things that as at the top of the organization, you're so used to doing things a certain way, things won't change quick enough. And sometimes customers just get used to it. So it's really the people who could say, like, have you thought about this? Or this doesn't quite work. We should really think about changing what we've done. Or I've seen another organisation that does something differently and bringing those ideas to the forefront. And I'm a big um, encourager of things like that. I think it's really important.
0: I absolutely agree with everything that you've said there. And and what I call that, I term that as cognitive diversity, uh, where you create a culture where difference of thoughts, difference of experience, difference of uh, uh, ideas are welcomed around the table uh, but so many organizations are still stuck, aren't they, in this, well, this is how we've always done it. And this is how we're supposed to think in this organization. So when they get this fresh kind of thinking, it, it it's very often, uh, you know, isolated. And consequently, they lose those talented staff who move on to other organizations where they feel more appreciated. Uh, and I think, you know, we've talked about the great resignation in the past and, I think that's part of the reason why there has been this great resignation, why some organisations, some industries are really suffering with talent leakage, uh, and that's costing in terms of in, in the con- in, in the context of opportunity costs, it's costing an awful lot. Uh, but these are blind costs that uh, they are quite happy to turn turn a blind eye yeah, to. It's
1: a shame, really, because I think. Um, we spend too many hours a day at work and I think individuals should bring the best health to work because you've got to mm. be happy, you've got to enjoy what you do and you've got to feel that you're in a safe environment. Um, if it's toxic and you know you're not enjoying or your voice is not being heard, then, yeah, that's there's lots of employers out there who who do tick those boxes. So it is a really difficult one. But I think when you're in larger organisations, you can get lost as well. Um, and when I mentor people, I always talk about visibility and I always talk about your internal and external stakeholders are just as important. And having spent majority of my career in London, one of the observations I had in the Midlands was that A lot of people are so focused on what they do and go home. They're quite siloed. And when you work for a large organisation, make sure that you look up and you understand what's around you and have a plan because you're in charge of your own destiny. Nobody's going to come up to you and say, you're amazing. Well, they might do, but the chances are there'll be that many people going for that job. So if you know that you've got your eye on a particular role, make sure that you're investing the time with people who know the person that's hiring or get time in that person's diary. Don't wait for the role to be advertised, then throw your hat in the ring because actually you probably missed the boat then because they would already have like a virtual bench where they've got names on a list of people they, they think would be suitable. And then there's always the unconscious bias. So it's, I think it's really important. And I think that thing around relationships. One thing I've I've seen because I I sit on lots of panels and especially females um, really struggle with networking. So when I talk I always say to them, forget the word networking. It's it's about building relationships. Think about absolutely just think about your normal day-to-day life. When you buy a house, you'll knock on the door next door, you'll go and introduce yourself. Watch a child when they're going to the unknown, they'll just find some children and they'll go and play that's networking so it is a myth and i think as leaders we've got to break that down because if people embrace just communication listening and just having a conversation that's networking
0: (laughs) so much wisdom packed into just two or three minutes there I I run a number of uh, bespoke uh, uh, leadership development programs that's all based around emotional intelligence Uh, and and more often they are for underrepresented groups within organizations. And I dedicate a whole module to exactly what you've just said there, that networking is just a term. It's a term that sometimes scares some people, but we need to push it out of the way. And we need to think of it in the context of relationship building. And we need to switch on the radar to understand what how things truly work in this organisation, wherever we are, organisation, group, team, meeting, wherever it might be. really need to understand how it works, but you're only going to understand when you start talking to people. When you start seeing how things and decisions are really made, beyond the policies and beyond the fancy posters on the wall, that's when you will be less surprised by some of the decisions the organisation makes. And you'll be a part of those decisions because you'll have conversations with the right people then. I think that's a really, really good piece of wisdom to finish on, Susie. I want to thank you for spending time with us. I know that you're a very, very busy person and uh, i might have to chase you again to get part two out of you no
1: it's been a pleasure thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day